Hello, I'm Christine Malika, PhD, and this is Interview with a Therapist. I'm a licensed psychologist, and each episode, I will be asking 10 questions to a professional in the field of mental health. Please note, in order to protect current or former clients' privacy in accordance with HIPAA and confidentiality laws, all identifying information has been changed. Today, on Interview with a Therapist, I will be speaking with Charles Kim, a licensed mental health counselor who works at a college counseling center in Boston, Massachusetts. Previously, he worked as a case manager and therapist at a residential facility for adolescents placed in temporary to long-term state care. His clinical interests include the impact of adverse childhood experiences, addressing learned helplessness, and kindness as a therapeutic modality. Welcome, Charles. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thanks for being on. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I have a quick question before I start the first question, and I was so interested in what you said in your um, intro about kindness as a therapeutic modality. I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit, because it's not something I've, I've really heard before. Oh, yeah, of course. I think I use that most in the context of people who are new to therapy. So oftentimes in a first appointment, there's a lot of anxiety in terms of what is therapy, what will it do to me? And I think some people have the idea that somehow the therapist is this sort of mental health x-ray machine that they'll be able to analyze the other person within a few minutes. And the idea that I want to convey is that, you know, the therapeutic experience is one of connection and one of of kindness, essentially, Mm. because what changes people is our connections with the people and the influence that they have. Uh, as we interact with them. So the uh, the therapeutic experience is just sort of a microcosm of, of maybe some personal change of a, of a way of relating to other people that you would hope they would generalize in their in their larger sort of outside life. Mm, thank you. That's really great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, question one, which figure in the field of mental health do you most admire? In abstract, I would say Urban Yalom for just his pure erudition um, existential um, psychotherapy definitely have interests me, sort of, I guess, one of my primary orientations. And so his books have been very influential, both his sort of clinical books, but also his nonfiction work as well. Mm. Um, and then maybe more closer to home, uh, Bessel van Kolk. He actually lives in Massachusetts, Massachusetts or practices here. And Gabor Mate. Uh, both of them bring not only an acute sort of clinical sort of wisdom but they also have a humanity to their approach to people and to clients uh, that I very much admire. And obviously, you know, for lucky, we get to admire the people that are around us as well. And for that, uh, one of my previous supervisors, uh, Chris Frazier, uh, I always admire him. I sort of, you know, in terms of the therapist I would like to be uh, would probably be him because, again, that that human element of connection and of warmth uh, that he brings to both his professional but also his his therapeutic relationships. Wow. Well, I hope he listens to this because that's a great compliment. Yeah. If you're listening, Chris, you, uh, we, we got to talk. <laughs> Which case will you never forget? I think probably the earliest cases are going to be the most impactful for you as a clinician. You know, it's just always those novel situations uh, that teach you the most, it seems. So I would have to go back to when I was working in that residential placement facility and it was meeting students, or I'm sorry, not students, but uh, young adults 
who were in state care, and they all had this similar thread of a lot of their mental health anguish uh, originated families that betrayed their, I guess, the trust of, of care and protection. Yes. So we're talking about parents that abandoned their children or, or parents that did terrible things, like even trafficked their own children for, for yes. their own reasons, and, and dealing with the fallout. But when you have that, that primary relationship, the one to your parent, the one that should sort of be the template for all your future healthy relationships, uh, for that mold to be tainted and corrupted so early, and to deal with the, um, I guess to deal with the, the distrust that forms when you feel betrayed by someone that should be protecting you. Uh, those are always the, the category of cases that, that always come to mind, uh, you know, when I'm dealing with any trauma or any kind of personal history. I couldn't agree with you more about uh, some of the most searing case memories are those that involve children who are already encountering mental health issues due to um, previous trauma or abuse. Yes. Yeah, I, I think um, not to be too, I guess, too obvious, but it's our families that make such a big difference. And so my work in those residential centers has taught me that nothing replaces family. And maybe a lot of our adult life is uh, dealing with evaluating and sort of reviewing what's happened to us in our youth. Mm. That's really important. Uh, what is the most frustrating thing about your job? I'd say on two levels. The first level would be the limits of being able to change some of the structural problems in clients' lives, where after speaking with them, you realize their problem is internal, it is, but a large part of that originates in their environment. So like with, with the, the, the students or the children that came from uh, very dysfunctional homes, obviously, they're, they're dealing with that for the rest of their lives. And so when you realize that a lot of the problems that we have are inherited or sort of they're, we're, we're traumatized by our environment and realizing our powerlessness as therapists in some ways mm. to deal with the environment, it's very frustrating. I remember one time sitting with a social work student who had come from a disadvantaged background. She had a young son with special needs. And as she talked, I realized if I was in her situation, I would be doing far worse than she was um, with her anxiety and her depression. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I realized, well, I'm very powerless to really fundamentally change this person's life. And in some ways, that's, that's not why they were there. I think essentially we all need a place where we can just be heard. And it taught me the need to have a little bit of humility as a therapist to realize, you know, you don't have any answers for someone. You're just helping someone bring out the answers they already have within them. Wow. Particularly with someone that, that's dealing with a lot of uh, environmental or their, or inherited problems uh, that, that would probably overwhelm me as a person. So, so yeah, just to realize that the, the main thing that I do is give a person a space to be heard and to be valued. And from there mm-hmm. to let their own creativity, their own sort of natural orientation toward wellness mm-hmm. and flourishing to, to manifest. It's almost Rogerian the way you describe that. Yeah, yeah, Carl Rogers, I think he had a lot. Uh, he definitely had to, took it to the extreme, but um, I appreciate his unconditional regard. Yeah. That's that's wonderful, and I, I like that idea of you as facilitator as opposed to uh, the older way people view therapists as like the expert on what was going on, and, and you were more of a facilitator providing a space for growth and just for understanding. That's really beautiful. 
Yeah, yeah, I think I mean essentially you do have to be able to instill within your client a sense of confidence that you know you do have some sort of clinical um, insight. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think people's impulse to thrive is the main driver of therapy, and that a lot of my job is just removing some of those obstacles and to sort of release their own natural impulse to to explore to reengage with the world and themselves. Wow, that sounds great. What do you consider your biggest professional success? Um, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I just realized, you know, that going back to so that, that's a previous question mm-hmm. about the, sure. the structural piece. So that's, uh, that's very, very frustrating. But then maybe on a personal level to realize, like, I only get to see a certain slice of their life and maybe for a very short time. And so there's always a part of me that's so interested to see the rest of the story. And I think if you're really going to do your job as a therapist, you're going to have to allow people to, you know, share and to sort of own their own story at their own time. So there, there are times when I wish I could just sort of be there for the whole process, but I'm just there to give a positive experience to let them kind of you know, figure out one piece of themselves and they sort of disappear off my radar and they, they move on with, my, with their lives. So that's still a very successful outcome. Mm. Mm. That's a nice way to look at it. Yeah. How does... But uh, my biggest professional success, yes. is that what you would ask? Yes. Um, I would say that someone who has never engaged in therapy, either because maybe they come from a culture that doesn't really recognize mental health as a valid issue to explore, or of their own maybe uh, family of origin that maybe discourages them. Uh, I've told them with maybe a lot of fear about connecting with other people, that if I can engage them in a few sessions and they have a good experience, and then maybe a month, uh, two months, a year, two years down the road, they, they sort of ring me back up and ask for a second session or a following sessions. Uh, for me, that's always very gratifying. Because it means that I, I allowed them to have some sort of trust that connecting with someone else uh, can be safe and it can be a good thing. So I'm always I'm always most gratified by by those sort of signs of of trust and connection with other people. Well, you sound like an amazing therapist. I can say that. Oh, go on, please go on. <laughs> um, how does? Can you tell my mom this? Can you give my mom yes. a call? Yes. Well, tell her to listen to this. <laughs> Make sure you send her this. <laughs> right. How does being a therapist affect your home life? Yeah, you'd think it would be this incredibly enlightened experience where there would be seamless communication and, you know, we have the therapist would have the most ideal family lives. <laughs> but I think, I think like every, every strength is a weakness. So I know at the end of the day, I'm kind of peopled out. Like I've, I've done my major talking. I've done my deep thought. I've done my, my deep connecting for the day. So I think sometimes, you know, it's like willpower with any exercise. It's like we fall back into those bad habits uh, when we get tired. And so all the things that as therapists we tell our clients not to do, like don't take it personally, don't assume too much intent, uh, don't try to read other people's minds, ask them directly. Uh, we fall into those patterns just because it's a shortcut. It's a little bit, it's like a, it's, it's cognitively easier to uh, fall into lazy thinking. And so the professional sort of rigorous thought that we bring to the, the, the session. So when I get home, I realize, yeah, there are ten, you know, there there are multiple times where, you know, I assume bad intent or I read into things too much instead of asking about them in the moment, and I, I carry a carry a sense of grievance, you know, instead of bringing it up um, in the moment. Mm. So all of those lazy habits I realize um, are just a function of maybe, yeah, putting my professional face, putting my best face forward, and my sessions, and so sometimes maybe my home life uh, can be cheated a little bit. Um, but on the you know, maybe in the, the best of circumstance, I think there's a, a high value for 
sort of quiet instability in thera- therapeutic homes. So, you know, maybe, you know, obviously in my case, uh, where my wife is also a psychologist, we get home and we, we realize, no, we don't want to have these deep conversations. We're just very happy to, to be quiet and to, to sit and talk about uh, very shallow things simply because, <laughs> you know, all of our all of our complex thinking has been used up for the day. So yeah, that, I was going to say, you might that. just be tired. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely feel it. So at the end of the day, I've, I'm, I'm done with people. I'm going to do my thing. Excellent. Well, that's honest, honest, honest. <laughs> um, how do you deal with burnout and vicarious traumatization? I really don't know. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the most difficult experiences I faced a little earlier on in my career. And I would say a lot of the trauma just comes from being out of control. So, you know, as part of a therapist, you think you're going to help to bring order and structure to a person's life, which, which obviously is part of the responsibility you have. But with those truly traumatizing events, uh, both hearing about them, but also experiencing them, you realize so much of life is out of our control. And the best, or the, the, the best thing we can do then is to recreate a sense of control in other domains in our life uh, that can balance out uh, that chaos. And so I think when I am exposed by too, too many experiences or, or situations where I am like not in control, where the client is too dysregulated and they, they need to be restrained, you know, at, at worst case scenario, uh, that you can't expose yourself to that constantly. You know, you have to treat it almost like radiation. Mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. to be careful with, with your dosage. And then you do need to pull back. And so I think I sort of have this reflex to realize, oh, I've been very taxed in this one domain or this one area. And so when I go back home or I look at my caseload, I'm going to have to cut back. You know, I'm going to have to have more alone time or, you know, I'm going to have to talk to my own therapist or I'm going to have to connect with, you know, whoever supervising me well to, to monitor how I'm feeling. So, mm. you know, it's sort of it's sort of like physician heal thyself, right? You, you take the medicine that you prescribe other people, which is, you know, rest. It's getting enough sleep. It's, it's self-care. It's treating yourself nicely. And it's connecting with other people to, to make sure that you're not alone with your thoughts all the time. I think that's really well said. I think that's really well said. What is something you remember learning from a patient? That people are doing the best that they can. And in this sense, I'm going to speak as a category of, of clients. I, I, you know, I'm so, I really desperately want to point out to this one client that sort of jumps to mind, but I think out of an excess of caution, I'm just going to say, again, in that category of people that mm-hmm. have been, tra- been betrayed uh, by those early family relationships is to realize that their behavior, no matter how dysfunctional, no matter how, irrational in the moment is actually the, the logical thing for them to do uh, when you take into context what they've experienced. So with someone that's, you know, very explosively angry, you know, it's not because they're responding to in the moment. You know, you have to realize their whole story is that it reminds them of when they're helpless in this one situation. So, you know, if they could take it back, if they could have a redo, they would have become explosively angry in that situation just to defend themselves or the people that they loved. So every dysfunctional behavior that you see sometimes is actually a corrective action emotionally uh, for people in the moment. So that's kind of helped me to feel that there are very few genuinely evil people in the world. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say there aren't. You know, there are probably definitely people that are have that sociopathic strain. But I think for the most part, you know, for the average client that you know, they do regret acting out afterwards. You know, and in, in the moment of lucidity, that's when you can kind of come as a therapist then. Uh, to give that unconditional regard 
but at the same time, just say, well, going forward, how can we do better? It sounds like it also allows you to maintain that compassion uh, perspective on where the person's coming from. I think so. I think, I think as a therapist, I always try to remind myself, no matter how tired or bored or irritated, whatever that feeling could be in the moment, uh, that I need to have some basic level of affection for every client or each person that I interact with. And that if you lose touch with that, that compassion and that affection for someone, uh, you're, you're in a dangerous place as a therapist. So it's not saying that you have to universally you know, cherish the time you have with a client or approve of whatever they did, but you can still say, but you know what, I could see myself behaving the same way in the, in the, in the right circumstance. And I think from there to sort of recreate a sense of connection, a sense of, you know, you're not some sort of, you know, advert monster, or you're not some sort of angry person or whatever it's going to be. And I think, I think, yeah, from that, that point of sort of sympathy, well, not sympathy, maybe more of a, a warm empathy, uh, I think is a good starting point. Yes. Thank you. If you weren't a therapist, what career do you think you would be? I think maybe a journalist, a writer, or maybe a documentarian. I think something about documenting the human experience is always interesting to me. So, you know, I, I guess it's always the same, you know, same, same type of inquiry, right? Like how did people become the way they became? Mm-hmm. But just maybe in a more, maybe sort of, you have more artistic license maybe to make it a bit more compelling in the moment. Yeah, like there's so, still a curiosity yeah, but, in the documentarian to tell yeah. the story and to first discover the story before it's even told to the public. Yeah, I think there's like a Greek playwright, poet, I think he wrote comedies, but his name was Terence. And he's, uh, his famous quote is, let nothing that is human be alien to me. And when I remember when I was reading that at a time in my life where I was just very confused about who I was and about, you know, was I doing the right things with my life? And it was just such a, such a comfort to hear that phrase. And when I think about it, it was probably because it normalized my sense of being lost and of having that piece of self-doubt and to reaffirm that, you know, life is to be explored and that there are many different ways to live a life. And just because uh, the first choice that you made maybe wasn't the best choice doesn't mean that you can't have other lives to live. So in, in a very short phrase, it sort of captured a lot of the human experience uh, for me. And the fact that, yes, life is very baffling at times, uh, but life is also very, very wonderful and very unpredictable in, in a great way. And part of the privilege of living is to be able to explore all of the different ways you can be human. And it's okay. And that sounds so reassuring to hear that said aloud. It really, it's like another way of saying, you know, it's, it's okay and it's going to be okay. Yeah, and I think, yeah, again, it's like physician heal thyself. So, you know, as a therapist, you always have to remind yourself you're in that process too. Mm-hmm. Like you're not exempt from the human experience. Right. And I think, you know, maybe the, the, the job as a journalist or a writer would echo that curiosity about what does it mean to be human and, and it being okay with, being, it being a trial, uh, um, a process of trial and error. Mm. If you could make one change to the field of psychotherapy, what would it be and why? I'm going to get a little political and I'll say probably universal health care and universal basic income. Mm. Okay. And I say this again be- 
yeah, I mean, there we go. Um, half your audience just tuned out. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But um, I think, again, it probably comes from two streams. Uh, one from my study, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of this. Mm-hmm, uh, but mm-hmm. basically saying it's physical safety, it's our physical needs, then followed by connection and belonging. You know, those are the basics. Uh, with also... By experience, again, working in a residential care facility where you realize a lot of the children's problems were driven by their family circumstance. And if you had families that had universal health care, had some sort of basic income that gave them a social safety net, that a lot of the problems with human trafficking, uh, other abuses would be gone. And Mm -hmm. so I think if you gave sort of children from very disadvantaged backgrounds at least some sort of basic financial security, that would... In the long run, I think, save you a lot more money than the catastrophic care of taking a child out of their family of origin, putting yes. them in state care, and, and all the long-term care that follows from the trauma that follows after that. So, you know, if you're really taking it even from a, you know, a more, most bang for your buck, you know, preventative care is always better than catastrophic care. And like you said, if you can keep the family of origin together and keep it as healthy as possible, like, you're not just ahead of the game you're like winning the game, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's so major of people who work with children can see that, that sometimes even when the family of origin is just a destructive, chaotic place, guess where those kids still want to be? They want to be yeah. right there in it. So if, like you said, if you can make it a place that has enough resources and enough access to be a healthy place, then that's what you want. You know, that's, that's what you want to um, preserve. Yeah. Honestly, the most frightening, the, the kids that I worried about the most were the kids that had given up on their family and they had given uh, up on that first oof. basic human impulse to connect and to bond. So I think mm. there's a movie that I recommend. Uh, if your listeners want to get an insight into what residential care is like, it's called Short Term 12. Okay. And it stars Brie Larson and I think one of her earlier roles. And right. it's on Amazon Prime, so it's free. And it's um, it definitely is sentimental, but it definitely gives a picture of some of the abuse and the impact it has on mm. on young adults. And I think a large part of therapy, a large part of, of the work of residential care is trying to create a, a replacement family, however imperfectly, mm-hmm. and for them to, or for the residents to be able to maintain their ability to trust another human being. Well, I'll have to check that out, short term 12, Pri- pre-Captain yeah, Marvel. <laughs> yes, 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 before she became super famous. <laughs> Although ironically, it also has Rainy Malik right before, you know, oh, before wow. he won his Oscar as well. Yeah, so you have this cohort of superstars, and they have like Keith Stanford, who is oh. fantastic in um, Atlanta, and then was it uh, like the Black Jesus and Judas or something? That movie on HBO Max. So this one movie had this incredible cohort of stars. Oh, well, I'm going to check it out. So thank oh, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you follow any religious or spiritual path? I would say that non-mystical Buddhism appears to be very accurate with its assessment of human experience and perception of reality. Mm. So for myself, I came from a very sort of Christian background. You know, the Christian church in the Korean American community is very influential. Um, and it's funny, if you, any of your listeners have watched Minari, you have like this reactivity within the Korean American community of one generation that's then avoiding the Korean church because of all of the bad experiences uh, <laughs> versus, you know, the other group that sort of stays with the Korean church. 
so I think for myself, I, I, you know, I definitely needed some distance. And I think from a practical, you know, everyday kind of use, like Buddhism does seem to be pretty accurate, even even though there are parts of it I still struggle with, with the idea of no self and the impermanence of all things. Those are pretty difficult concepts to accept, but in, in practice, they seem to be true. You know, that's very interesting if I can speak for my husband here, who, as you know, is also um, Korean American, grew up in a um, very traditionally um, Christian Korean uh, Korean home, as where he is in his life now, he also identifies himself most closely to Buddhism. So when you said Mm. that, it sort of sparked that. And what was the name of the show that you mentioned about the generational differences? Oh, it's that movie, Minari, that won the Golden Globes for Best Foreign Language Film. Ah, okay, okay, okay. It. And it's a, it's basically a first generation Korean immigrant family story in the, I think the late seventies, early eighties. Okay, well, that, look at this. I'm I'm getting down a whole watch list here, of, uh, according to Charles Kim. So. <laughs> oh no no it's 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 a very well done. You know, it's not going to be Captain Marvel. It's not going to be, you know, Avengers Endgame. Right, but right. I think that's a good thing. Oh, excellent. Well, I'll have to watch that with him. Um, I have a yeah. bonus question that I ask everyone after my um, standard 10, which is what do you wish to tell non-therapists that are listening? Hmm. Let's say don't be afraid to shop around. You know, I think again, studies show that it's the connection that you have with your therapist mm-hmm. that determines uh, the overall outcome or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the relative positivity of your outcome. So, you know, if you meet with a therapist and it wasn't a good experience, that doesn't mean therapy is wrong. It just means you had the wrong fit. So eventually, I think if you do, you know, if you're willing to, you know, like anything when it when it comes to human relationships, if you're willing to take another step of faith, if you're willing to reach out into the universe, uh, usually the, the universe will give you something that you need. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, I have to tell you, believe me, no one tuned out. This was an amazing talk, and there were some things you said that made me realize some things and made me reflect on some things, and I really thank you for your perspective today because it was just, it was fantastic to hear from you. Oh my gosh, no, it's a, it a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Interview with a Therapist. As always, I hope these episodes both help humanize the therapist and help destigmatize seeking mental health treatment. If you are interested in seeking therapy, apa.org backslash help center is one place to start. If you are a family member of someone seeking help, nami.org can be useful. That's nami.org. You can find us on Instagram at interview therapist. Please note that comments or messages on social media are not monitored regularly and is not to be used for any treatment concerns or emergencies. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 911 in your local area or call 1-800-273-8255 nationally. This podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice or treatment.